If you have your Bibles this morning, if you would open them to Mark chapter 1. And if you don't have your Bibles, there should be one right in that pew in front of you. If you could grab hold of that, you're going to want to be in the Scriptures this morning. And we're starting a new series this morning. It's called The Summer in the Sun. We're going to be looking at Jesus Christ through the Gospel according to Mark. And I can't tell you how excited I am about this series. Probably more excitement about this series than anyone that I've ever done because for, for several reasons. One being, and the main one being, Mark does something that's a bit unique in his Gospel. He focus, focuses in on Jesus Christ like a laser beam. And you get to stories like Jesus walking on the water. And if you remember from Matthew, Matthew brings in that Peter got out of the boat. And then he sank when he looked at the wind and the waves, but he got out of the boat. When Mark doesn't bring that detail in, you'll see that when we get there. Because he wants to focus on Jesus. By the way, most believe that Mark was the interpreter for the Apostle Peter. Peter was the one who was telling Mark about all these stories. Mark wasn't one of the twelve disciples. So he heard about these stories as he translated and wrote this gospel as an ally and participant and cooperative partner for, for Peter. And it's the, the book of Mark, you know, I remember 1993, one of my professors walked us through the book of Mark and it grabbed hold of me because it's written in such a narrative, literary style. In other words, it's about stories and they're fast-paced stories. Listen, if you've got attention deficit disorder, then Mark is your gospel of choice. Why? Because the word immediately takes place 42 times. Immediately, immediately, immediately. It's fast-paced. It's action-packed. It's the gospel for those of us who love stories that move. And it's also a gospel written, really, for Gentiles, not for Jews. And not just Gentiles in general, but Gentiles who are struggling because Mark wrote this gospel while the persecution was ramping up under Nero and, and Christians were being massacred and put to death by the hundreds and thousands. So this summer, I invite you with me on a journey through the gospel of Mark as we look squarely at Jesus, the suffering servant, the God-man, as Mark presents him, and like all journeys, you've got to have a departure point, and our departure point this morning is verse 9 in chapter 1. So let's look at that together. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, when you read that, it's fairly unremarkable at first blush. So we've got to get some background, we've got to get some context, and too few of us take the time to really do that. So part of this series, you're probably not going to see too many three-point, four-point outlines from me. We're going to flow with the style of Mark through these sermons. And so we're going to bring out what Mark was saying. Mark is writing to Gentiles, and there's a reason, and I'll tell you in a minute, why he says Nazareth of Galilee. You see, Mark's Gentile Roman audience 
wouldn't have heard about the little town of Nazareth. Now, I grew up in a little town in New York. And how many of you have heard of it? It's called Derider, New York. Anybody visited it? We didn't. Did you, Harold? Oh, yeah, you came up with me on a camping trip for the youth ministry. Harold broke his arm on the hill that I grew up with, grew up on. Did you, Harold? That was exciting. What a memory. Derider, New York is not on anyone, anyone's map here. But let me ask you another question. How many of you have heard of Syracuse, New York? How many have been to Syracuse, New York? You see, this is what Mark is doing. He's saying Jesus came from Nazareth, of which nobody would have heard of in his audience. And then he says of Galilee, because all of them would be aware of Galilee. Let me tell you why. You see, Palestine, the land of the Jews, was really divided in three sections. Up in the north, you've got Galilee. In the middle, you've got Samaria. And down below where Jerusalem was, you've got Judea. So you remember, Jesus is doing most of his miracles up in Galilee. He goes around Samaria, rarely going through it, and does some of his miracles in Judea, dies in Judea on the cross in Jerusalem. And so you've got this land of Palestine, and then you go back into the history of 722 B.C., and you begin to remember that, yeah, there were 12 tribes in Israel, and the 10 northern tribes were called Israel, and the two lower tribes were called Judah, and Israel had more wicked kings than Judah, and God brought judgment to Israel before He brought it to Judah, and He brought judgment to Judah through Babylon, and He brought judgment to Israel through Assyria. And so in 722 B.C., here comes the Assyrian superpower conquering Israel. And you know what they do? By the way, it's ingenious. You want to keep a conquered land from being able to rise up and revolt? Well, here's what you do. You take the cream of the crop of the land you just conquered and you resettle them all over your kingdom and then you bring people from all over your kingdom and you repopulate them right in the land and sooner or later they're going to be neighbors, they're going to be lovers, they're going to mix in their marriage and they're going to be too weak to ever rise up. And that's what Assyria did. And all of that took place right in the land of Galilee. So by the time of Jesus, this was a mixed population of Jew and Gentile. In fact, the Bible calls it the Galilee of the Gentiles. There's around 3 million people that lived there, according to Josephus, a Jewish historian in mid to late 1st century A.D. And while the religion was predominantly Jewish, it was mixed with people from all different nationalities. And Jesus travels from Galilee, down, from Nazareth, down to where John was baptizing at Bethany. Now listen, you might know Bethany. Remember Lazarus? Remember he died? Remember Mary and Martha? They're all siblings. That's not the Bethany that John the Baptist was baptizing at. That was another Bethany. This was, according to John, the Apostle John, who's careful to designate it, this is the Bethany across the Jordan. It's on the east side of the Jordan. So you've got to travel 60 miles from Nazareth down to where John was baptizing. And he goes to the River Jordan. Now, you, you, you've heard the River Jordan, right? In your mind, you might think of some raging river like the Delaware, wide and deep at spots. That's not the River Jordan. If you floated down the River Jordan, 
It was around 200 miles long from start to end where it emptied into the Dead Sea. If you flew a plane right down, it's 105 miles long. It's 100 miles wide at its widest spot, and it averages 10 feet deep. And in Friends, it's a beautiful river, but it's a muddy river. And so here comes Jesus walking 60 miles south to the Bethany across the Jordan to this guy that's wearing strange clothes His hair is all over the place. He eats a strange diet. His name is John the Baptist, who just happens to be the cousin of Jesus. And he's leading a revival. See, John the Baptist is an evangelist. He's a preacher. He's a proclaimer of the truth. And he's leading a revival in Israel. And to see what's driving the revival, let me put it in maybe a way that we can identify with. You ready? Let's say Iran conquered America and was slowly squeezing out American history and ideals and culture and replacing it with Middle Eastern culture and you're part of this now Iranian-controlled country and you are angry because you're now paying taxes to the Ayatollah. You're angry because you're culture is being extinguished and you're being forced to its culture, now you can maybe taste a little bit of the national anger and pride of Israel. And John the Baptist is preaching and people by the thousands were going out to the wilderness. Listen, not to the state parks of Pennsylvania. The wilderness, not a lot there. Leopards and other dangerous animals. Not a lot of lush vegetation. This is the wilderness. And and they're coming out by the thousands. And the excitement is growing in Israel. Can Can you grab hold of that? The excitement is growing in Israel because this revival is sweeping the nation. And they're thinking that the Messiah is here. Is John the Messiah? Is he about to free Israel from Rome because they're in subjection to Rome. And they actually say, John, are you the Messiah? And he says, I'm not the Messiah. And what he was was the forerunner of the king, forerunner of the Messiah. You see, the forerunner was a real position, not too dissimilar to an ambassador. A little bit different. But the forerunner had a function. He had a purpose. He would take a work crew. And he would go where the king was about to travel. He would usually go a month or two before the king, and they would repair the roads. Every rainy season, ruts would go down those roads. You've got to repair them because the king's not going to travel on rutted roads. And trees would fall down across the road, and they'd have to clear the brush and clear the trees. And this work crew would repair the roads, restore the roads, and in some times, at some times, rebuild the roads. And all the while, they would be shouting out to the people that lived there, prepare yourselves for the king is about to visit. And all the people would go out and they would decorate their homes and often repaint their homes and often clear the debris from their in front of their homes. They would make themselves ready for the king to come. And that was John's purpose in life. He was to clear the way for the Messiah. Get the people ready because Jesus was about to come. 
And the way he did it, friends, is the same way I'm doing it right now for you. He preached. Except for all of John's sermons that he preached, he said the same theme. Here it is. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And all of a sudden, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were curious. Why are thousands of people going out in the wilderness? Listen, you don't have restaurants in the, in the wilderness. You don't have refrigerators. You've got to pack hard tack food. You've got to pack bread and dried meats. And you've got to get out there. It's a distance to travel. Why are they going? And they would come and they would investigate. And John would speak to them like this. Now listen, I had somebody this last week tell me, Pastor Tim, that Ten Commandments series, every time I left the sanctuary, it felt like I had arrows sticking out of me from the Word of God. It just entered me all over the place. We Listen, that's nothing compared to John the Baptist preaching. You know what he would... Here's, here's one of John's sermons, you ready? You better get ready, people. Because God's got His axe out, and anybody that cuts, cuts a tree with an axe knows you first laid the axe at the base of the tree and you space your feet out. You don't want to swing and miss. God, John is saying, has got the axe against the base of the tree, and He's about to swing. You better get ready. You better repent, because when He swings, it's too late if you haven't repented. This was John the Baptizer. He didn't get that name because his last name was Baptizer. He was the son of Mr. Baptizer. This is what he did, John the Baptizer. And baptizing was incredibly unique in Israel. Nobody baptized except for one reason. Listen, synagogues didn't have baptismal tanks. They didn't have summer baptism programs. The only time that they ever baptized, and it was rarely administered, now listen, this is important, was when a Gentile wanted to come into the Jewish religion called Judaism. And in order for a Gentile proselyte to come into Judaism, they would immerse that Gentile under the water, signifying that their old pagan ways are washed away, they are now cleansed and purified to enter Judaism. That was the only reason they ever baptized. And it was only for Gentiles. John didn't baptize Gentiles, he baptized Jews. Listen, let me help you understand and appreciate how difficult it would have been for a Jew to consent to baptism by John. You see, the Jew being baptized was saying, in effect, that they were no better in God's eyes than a Gentile. Do you know how blasphemous that would be to the ears of the Jews? You hear this in the Gospels. Listen, our father is Abraham. We're descendants of the covenant of God. Our God is Yahweh. We're the people of God. We don't need what the Gentiles need. We're the chosen. That was the Jewish mindset. And John was saying to them, listen, it doesn't matter if Abraham is your father physically. Is God your father spiritually? And if you're in sin, then you've got to repent and you've got to put your faith in the Messiah. You see, baptism was always an admission of sinfulness and the need for repentance. It never saved anyone. John wasn't baptizing anybody and they were gaining salvation. It was a baptism of repentance. 
Which is why John says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And what he was saying was this, the first proof that you are repentant is your willingness to come onto the level of a Gentile, admit that you're a sinner, and enter the muddy waters of the Jordan. That's your first fruit of being repentant. And you're making yourself ready for the Messiah. Friends, the ground is level on the banks of the Jordan then as they are today. Every single person is in need of God's forgiveness. So here comes Jesus traveling from Nazareth south to the Bethany across the Jordan. And he comes up to John the Baptist and John says to him, why are you doing this? He really says this in Matthew 3.14, I need to be baptized by you, Jesus, and do you come to me? Jesus, you're the Messiah. I need you to baptize me, not the other way around. Why are you coming to me? Why are you being baptized by me? You know, a lot of people have tried to answer that question. There's an ancient book called The Gospel According to the Hebrews, and in this Gospel According to the Hebrews comes this fictional dialogue with Mary, and the brothers and sisters of Jesus, yes, he had sisters, and they're all dialoguing. And Mary says, Jesus, it would please me if you would be baptized. And so to please his mother, Jesus consents to be baptized. That's the heretical book, the ancient gospel of the Hebrews. Well, the Gnostics took their stab at it. They said, well, Jesus was just a human being, nothing more ordinary than a human being until the moment that he was immersed under the water, and when he came up in the Spirit like a dove came down, then he became the God-man. But before that, he was just human, like you and I. There's been a lot of explanations. Why did Jesus get baptized? And there's a lot of flawed ones. Let me just give you two reasons, and there's more. The simplest one is the first one. Everything Jesus ever did was in obedience to his Father. This is what he says in John 6. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. My bread, he says later, is to do the will of the Father. In other words, his spiritual life existed to obey the will of his Father. And he did it from birth until death. He was perfectly obedient. So why was he baptized? Simply God the Father told him to. God the Father led him to be baptized. And that's just one reason. And that's not sufficient to answer the question, but at least it gets us going. And by the way, a little time out. You been baptized, believer? I find it so remarkably surprising how Christians can say one time after another, year after year, Yes, Pastor Tim, I am a believer. And it's almost like God said, okay, follow me. And if you want to, go ahead and get baptized. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus has made it clear it's a command to be baptized. I never have understood why Christians want to wait 
Or choose. I have a brother that still hasn't been baptized, yet he claims to be a Christian. I don't get that. It's a command. Jesus made the model for us. Jesus set the mark for us that believers are to be baptized. But that doesn't get really fully at the answer to this question. Why did Jesus consent to be baptized? There's another reason. There's a couple more reasons, but let me give you the main one. He submitted to John's baptism, even though he didn't need to repent, but it was necessary, quote unquote, for righteousness. What's that mean? It means that Jesus, if he's going to completely identify with sinful humanity, he had to associate himself with sinners and he had to be placed among the guilty of humanity. And that is all of humanity. We're all guilty. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You see, Jesus would be fully immersed, not just in the River Jordan, but that symbolized what was going to happen in three short years. He would be fully immersed in the river of death of our sins, plunged beneath their dark surface, and His life would be taken from Him, and He would be brought up out of the waters, not just of the Jordan by John, but out of the grave by His Father, And he would step out of the banks, not just of the Jordan by John, but out of the banks of the grave and set foot into eternal life, the first fruits of what is to follow all of those who believe in Jesus. You see, friends, the baptism of Jesus was necessary for him to fully associate with us and our need for our sins to be placed on him. You know, when we baptize Here's what we teach. That when I lower you below the water, listen, you're already a believer. We won't baptize you unless you put your faith in Jesus. That's biblical. We lower you below the water symbolizing that you are now dead and buried in Christ. Your old sin nature is dead. It's gone. It was put on Jesus on the cross. And when we bring you up out of that water, you are given new life, not when we baptize you, but when Jesus saved you. And you bring, you come up out of that water and guess what? There's a chasm between your new nature and your old nature and you can never cross it to go back just like the old nature could ever cross to go to the new. Jesus is the only way and He only goes one direction. You come up out of the waters of baptism, friends, you're preaching, you're proclaiming that Jesus has done away with my old nature The new nature has come. I can never go back to the old man. I can only go forward in the new man. And it is towards eternal life in Christ, sanctified, becoming more like Him each and every passing day. See, Jesus did not die for His own salvation, friends. He died for ours. He didn't die for any guilt He possessed. He died for our sin and our guilt. This is the great teaching of justification. Listen, you've got to take this and you've got to drive it in your mind like an anchor. That's the purpose of theology, not to give you puffed up arrogant knowledge, but to drive the way that you live. Listen, justification wasn't a word invented by, by Microsoft Word. Justification is rich and it's under attack today. Did you know that? There are preachers all over. There are seminary professors that are trying to erode justification. But here's what justification is. When Jesus died on the cross, 
God treated him as if he had lived your life and my life. Did you hear that? When Jesus died on the cross, the Father treated the Son as if He actually lived your life and my life full of sin, full of falling short of the glory of God, full of disobedience. And God punished His Son as if my sin and your sin was His sin. And because of that, He treats every believer as if he or she actually lived Christ's life, a perfect life in perfect obedience to everything that God ever commanded. Listen, friends, you've got to understand this. Justification means God sees you in Christ like He sees Christ. The moment you put your faith in Jesus, God sees you in perfect obedience. And He blesses you and He treats you like a child of His. And He lavishes His love out for you. Listen, you can't be a Christian and correctly be holding on to your old nature and your old sins and the guilt and the shame. That's your fault for bringing it in. God said it's done away in Christ. You are a new creature. There's too many of us that won't let go of it. There's a lot of power, by the way, in holding on to shame. You know that? Because when you hold on to shame, then you can excuse why you cultivate your own self-righteousness. And everybody from the dawn of humankind have always wanted to cultivate Eve, Adam, their own self-righteousness. It's what plagued the Pharisees. There's a lot of power if I can make myself look better in God's eyes. But you can't. Justification undermines all self-righteousness and says it's not necessary. Jesus has done everything you need to be righteous. So when Jesus was baptized, he associated himself with sinners. And friends, when we are baptized, we associate ourselves with Jesus. He died the death I deserved. He took my sins upon him. And I received the life that was his because of the perfect obedience of Jesus to his Father. We are in the kingdom of God, Christians, because of the obedient work of Jesus all right, that was all background. You ready to get into this? Verse 11, let's go. We don't, you guys aren't listening fast enough. I've got to hurry. So John relented and baptized Jesus. And here's verse 11. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. You know anybody with schizophrenia? I mean, truly know anybody with schizophrenia. I've worked with a lot of them. The root word of that word opening in Mark's Gospel, is different from the Greek words in Mark and Matthew's and Luke's. Here's the root word. It means schizo. And it means to split, rend, divide with violence. God the Father rended the sky open. He ripped it open with violence. And the only other time this word occurs in the New Testament, friends, you remember it, it's when the veil in the temple, the moment Jesus died, was ripped from the top to the bottom. The hands of God ripped that veil open because now all people in Christ are accessible to the Father, not just the high priest one day a year. And all of a sudden, the Jews who knew their Old Testament, who are there that day when Jesus was baptized, wouldn't you have loved to have been there? John says he saw what was happening. People saw what was happening. All of a sudden, this ripped open sky, here comes the Spirit like a dove down on Jesus. 
And if they knew their Old Testament, which most of them, a lot of them did, especially Isaiah, they would have known that here's Jesus fulfilling Isaiah 64.1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. See, every Jew knew when that Spirit was coming down like a dove, it doesn't mean the Spirit was in the form of a dove, it came down like a dove, but every, every Jew knew that bulls were the sacrifice for the rich, lambs were the sacrifice for the middle class, doves were the sacrifice of the poor. Don't you remember Mary, the mother of Jesus? Remember 40 days after giving birth? The Jewish law was that she had to appear before a priest and be cleansed, and she didn't have very much money. The Magi had not yet come, and she brings as her offering, the poorest offering, the doves. And the dove is a gentle bird. It has no talons. It's an extremely loyal bird. It mourns over its mate when its mate is in distress. And you remember, right? You remember when Noah and his family and the animals were out on the ark. And what did Noah finally send out that brought a sprig from a tree? It was a dove because the dove was the herald of the good news that God's wrath was over, the waters were receding, and life was about to come back to humanity. And in the same way, the Spirit of God was heralding the good news that God's wrath is over in the person of Christ. Hide yourself in Christ and you will have life eternal. And all of a sudden we think of Isaiah 11:2, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And we think of Isaiah 42, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my Spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nation. So here's the scene. The skies are ripped wide violently. And a voice booms from the heavens. And he's about to say something that I've got to help you see a little bit more clearly before we look at it. You know, we do a lot of group activities in our board, especially in our retreats. And one of the things that I've been doing for years and years with groups, youth ministry, when I worked in psychiatric on our board, we do it a lot. We do it in our small group. It's this. I take a ball, and I'll usually start, and I'll throw it to somebody. And then it's my job to tell something praiseworthy and honorable about that person that I've seen in their character and in their life. But listen, here's almost invariably what happens when we do this. Somebody will get that ball and they'll throw it to somebody and then they'll speak to the group about that person because it's easier and less intimate to speak to the group about that person than look at the person and speak to the person. It takes more vulnerability. It's more risky. It takes more humility. It's more intimate. And Matthew records that God said, this is my beloved son. He's got the audience in mind. Mark and Luke record God saying, you are my beloved son. Now, friends, listen, you go out on a date with your loved one, and you're sitting in that restaurant, and you're having a meal, and you're looking. Ladies, let me, let me ask you directly. Let's say your husbands or your boyfriends are with you across that, that table. This is a romantic date for you. And he's looking all around. He's looking at the TVs because the baseball game's on and the Braves are beating the Phillies. It's exciting. And he's looking at the TV and all the while going, you know, I really love you. I'm so glad we could finally get out on a date. Is that really romantic? Is that really intimate? How about when he just sits and he crowds out distractions 
And He looks like a laser beam into your eyes and He says, you know what? I love you. I am so glad we have finally gotten time back together again. We need this. Listen, this is God the Father speaking straight to the Son. And He says, you are My beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And friends, that should explode in your minds because no prophet ever heard those words. Abraham, he was called the friend of God. That's pretty awesome. Ezekiel, he was called the son of man. Others were called the men of God and the servants of God. But Jesus alone was called the son of God 52 times in the Gospels. And it was foretold in Psalm 2, verse 7. Jesus is one with the Father. He possesses the same nature as the Father. He is equal with the Father. He's the radiance of the Father. He's the exact representation of the Father. Jesus is the beloved Son of God. But there's something really cool that God does. He says, you are my beloved. Friends, that's affection. And with you I am well pleased, and that's approval. Fathers, you speak to your children like that? You give them both affection and approval. A good father always gives both affection, I love you, and approval, I'm proud of you. Jesus was God's only beloved Son. His unique Son in a special sense. And you know, I love children. I love holding babies. Most children I love. I I better be honest, okay? But no child has ever done in my heart what my four children have done. I, I remember when they were younger especially, whenever I would see them, a flutter, a fl- like a butterfly would go through my heart. No child's ever done that but my own four. This is God the Father loving uniquely Jesus, His beloved Son, who is God in the flesh. And the Spirit of God... The moment you and I put our faith in Jesus, the Spirit of God, friends, has done something similar to the day that Jesus was baptized. The Spirit came into your heart and sealed you. And listen, nobody can open that seal in ancient days other than the one to whom it was attended to be the recipient. The Spirit of God sealed you to be opened only by God the Father the day you enter eternity And not only did the Spirit come inside of you, God the Father spoke the words of 1 John 3 over you. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are, friends. If you're in Christ, you're a child of God. God is pouring out His lavish love on you. And the Spirit of God has filled you with a measure of, Jesus, by the way, is the only one that had the full measure of the Spirit, according to John. But all of us have a portion. All of us have a measure of the Spirit. And that measure of the Spirit is the power, the giftedness, to do everything that God is asking you to do. You can never, ever say before God, I cannot do what you're asking me to do. The Spirit of God lives in you. And the Father Father God has poured His affection and approval over you. Do you really understand the scope of the power that you have, Christian brother and sister? And do you really, really, truly understand the depths 
and the height and the width and the amount of love that God has for you. It pours into your heart, Romans 5.8, to overflowing. And Mark, more than any other Gospel writer, shows us how important what happens next really is. You know what? Here's what we do too often. We take the baptism of Jesus and we separate it like it's a totally different event than the wilderness testing. That's modern-day biblical compilers of the Bible that make those divisions. That's not in the original. And so you flow right into the next part. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. You see, Mark uses this word immediately 42 times, but it's a link word. You see, they're meant to flow one into another, into another, and into another. There's not these demarcations in the true gospel narrative. And he was driven out into the wilderness, friends. That's a metaphor for the world. And he was with the wild animals. That's Mark strengthening the the, the sense of danger out in the world. He's got Satan, the prince of the world, that's about to do battle with the Son of God, the beloved Son of God. And there's wild animals, meaning he's alone, he's by himself, and the animals are against him. You know, the Jews viewed the wilderness as the anti-Eden. You've got the lush Garden of Eden, and it's exact opposite the wilderness. It's the wild abode of demons in the place of danger. It's the metaphor of the world. And here is Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, thrust out into the world to do battle for us. And Mark's focus is on Jesus Himself who emerges victorious over Satan. He emerges victorious over the wild animals of creation. He emerges superior to even the angels who served Him, according to Mark, who ministered to Him. You see, all the while, Mark's saying, this is the Son of God. He reigns preeminent over everything. Satan, demons, creation, and angels. But if we only arrive to that, I'm pretty sure we haven't captured the thrust of where Mark is going. You see, there's something better, something, uh, maybe not better, something in addition that the word immediately does, and it's this. Now let me put it in my own words. I'm going to stray from the notes. Jesus was about to enter in a 40 days of vicious battling. And it's not an accident that just moments before he was thrust out into the world, into the wilderness, the Spirit came down to anoint him and the Father came down to express his affection and his approval. You ever know what it's like not having the affection and the approval of your Father? I think a lot of you do. Larry Crabb one time said there was a little boy, 12 years old, whose father was a physician, and they were working in the garage, and they were putting together, a, I think it was a, a project, a doghouse, if I remember. And Larry Crabb says his father got the beeper to go to an emergency, and the son said, I'm going to finish the project. I'm going to make my father proud, and he finishes the project. And the father comes home from the emergency, and he takes one look at the project and starts screaming, at his son because his son 
did it wrong. Now we're going to have to tear it apart and we're going to have to start all over again because you screwed it up and you didn't do it the way it was supposed to be done. And 20 years later, that little boy, now grown up, was in the offices of Larry Crabb, emaciated, weak, afraid of everybody, unable to live powerfully in this world. The father's affection and approval, friends, is huge. It's identity forming. And the father speaks to the son, and it's ironic, right? Well, not really, not in the sovereignty of God. Moments before Jesus is thrust out to do battle with temptation and with the, the prince of this world, and he lived on the strength of the Spirit and on the knowledge of his father's love. That's why it's crucial that we know who we are as Christians. You have the Spirit of God in you, and you've got the father's love on you. Live victoriously in the world. It's almost irresistible to end this sermon in that way. But if I did, then I would not be doing justice to Mark's gospel, because he doesn't do that. While everything I just said was true, friends, you've got to end it on Jesus, because all of Mark's gospel is focusing on Jesus. And Jesus humbly submitted to baptism he, submit, he signified his entire willingness to stand in the place of sinners and suffer and die for them. And out of those waters, the Holy Spirit anointed him and his Father publicly adored him. And from his baptism, the Spirit propelled Jesus into intense suffering on his way to the cross where he would experience what baptism symbolized total immersion into the river of death for our sins, coming up out of the grave, victorious over death, having broken the power of Satan, and offering as a train of people in His wake, life and life everlasting. Friends, do you see Jesus and Mark? Do you see the overcoming, the ever-obedient, the Spirit-filled, beloved Son of God? Mark is holding him up for us to see, and we love him more every day. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for Mark. I love this gospel. I am so excited, Lord, because we are going to be preaching and teaching and looking at Jesus alone for the entire summer. What a great summer. Lord, I pray that we would profit from this, that we would change. Lord, that we would be captivated with a clearer picture of your Son and we would love Him more tomorrow than we do today. And Lord, that our lives would be filled with victory over the world. Father, victory that we can have because the Spirit of God lives in us and the love of Your, your love settles upon us. We love You. We thank You. And in Jesus' name, Amen.